Well, any visitors or guests, my name is Tom, and it is a privilege to be here with you. I have the uh, really honor to introduce you, uh, Julie McGowan Boyd. If you have been not part of our church for a while, maybe you're a visitor or guest, maybe you've joined us in the last year, you might not know Julie. Uh, Julie is someone that was part of Christian Assembly for a number of years, and then in 2004, about 13 years ago, we sent her out to Kenya to do some work that she felt called and invited by God to do, and we affirmed her in that. So she has been in Kenya for the last 13 years, uh, really seeking to serve um, the Kenyan people and really to love and learn from them as well. And so we have the privilege to hear from Julie as she comes to teach in a moment. I want to tell you two other things that you need to know. One is um, that a year ago, right about uh, this time a year ago, we made the decision to give $1.2 million to the Living Room Ministries, which is the ministry that Julie had founded. And so you'll get to hear an update a little bit as Julie comes to hear kind of how that work is progressing. And then on a more personal note, some of you might know this, but her adopted son, his name is Ryan, is going through a, a transplant. And he's kind of to the point where he really doesn't have an immune system at this point. He's gone through the chemotherapy, and so they're in the process of doing that at UCLA. So what that means is this, is that Julie's not going to be available after the service to hug everybody and greet everybody because she simply cannot get sick and then bring that sickness to her son in the midst of the transplanting process. So here's what I want to do. I know that we would all afterwards want to be able to hug Julie and give her uh, just our love. So we're going to do that by applauding. God's work through Julie as she comes to speak. So would you just give her rousing uh, a hand of applause as she comes? So Julie, come on. One of the things that I am so aware of in these days that we're doing treatment with Ryan is the kindness of God. And so I'm going to talk more about that tonight, but I just wanted to start by saying that this weekend and being with you all feels like another kindness, and I'm really, really grateful. And that um, I think it would be one thing to share if we were at the end of the story but we're not. We're right in the middle of some really hard stuff, and I feel like it's not by accident that I get to share from this place that is as raw and authentic as I've ever needed to before. And so tonight, I need you to be a friend, a room full of friends. And I believe that anyways, but that's how I am looking at all of you. That's how I'm going to share. Um, so let's begin um, by reading from Luke Chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 8. It says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will, rec- you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. 
Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was a baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary, she kept it all in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. It was just as the angel had told them. This story is so familiar that sometimes we miss the wonder of it all, the heart of God that's on display, the dramatic announcement by a host of angels. Whenever we look at a story that has already has a beginning and an ending, sometimes we forget what it's like to be in the middle of the story. The Jewish people who had been waiting for so long for a Messiah who had been promised to come and set them free from their oppressors. But there was 400 years of waiting, of what felt like for nothing, 400 years of silence, 400 years of disappointment. And then this crazy story, which no one would have believed began, or maybe it just continued. Silence was over. An unmarried teenage girl was pregnant. A simple carpenter decided to trust her unbelievable story and stood beside her as the savior of the world, came into the most, into the world in the most unlikely of ways. The greatest of kings born in the most humble way. He became poor. It had been told in Isaiah that a message from a high and towering God who lives in eternity, whose name is holy. I live in the high and holy places, but also with the low spirited, the spirit crushed. And what I do is put new spirit in them, get them up and on their feet again. Shepherds were the first to be told the announcement that the Messiah, who they had all been waiting for, was finally here. Not priests and kings, not the powerful, wealthy, or religious. The shepherds. Who were they that they should be eyewitnesses to the glory of God? A little background in the first century history records shepherds to be at the bottom rung of the social ladder. They shared the same status as tax collectors and dung sweepers. They could not hold public office. Their testimony was not admissible in court. They were not allowed to go to the temple, and shepherds were most often seen as thieves. For devout Jews in this time, they would not buy the milk, wool, or sheep from shepherds because they assumed that it was stolen, and sometimes it was. But there was also a systemic injustice that was taking place in that the sheep owners paid the shepherds via sheep. And so if no one would buy the sheep products, whether the milk or the wool, then they didn't have any livelihood really to support their families. And what this means is that the shepherds were living and working under the assumption and with the identity that they weren't good enough. They were used to being overlooked, seen but not really, 
not worth listening to, not trustworthy. Shepherds were officially labeled sinners, a term for a class of despised people. And in one surprising night, I can only imagine how surprised they were, God chose these unpretentious shepherds to be the ones to first hear the joyous news. Even from birth, Christ moved among the lowly. He was the friend of sinners, not the self-righteous, and he came to save them. My dear friend Betty, who I've talked about often, she discovered the affection of Jesus Christ while she was dying from AIDS. And she loved this passage of scripture where Jesus told the religious folk, healthy people don't need a doctor. The sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. The announcement by the angels from the heart of God did not go to the pious, but in a sign of what Jesus was all about, the heralding of the coming of the Messiah went to those who could not come to God. So he came to them. Glory to God in the highest, the angels declared. What was happening in this text is the glory of God shining around the shepherds in a way that is impossible to describe with words. His greatness is being made known. And the shepherds were terrified. The angel said, don't be afraid. They always say that. The glory of God, the weight of God, the goodness of God always reveals who we are, broken and unworthy, but loved so deeply. What is so beautiful is that God is coming not to condemn, but to set us free, to free us from our fears, from our need to be perfect or enough, to liberate us from our failures, from our desire of lesser things, to free us from our need to please As the old Christmas carol tells us, the hope and the fears of all the years, they were met in thee tonight. The waiting and the aching, the hope of a better way, the fear that it may never come. And then there's this word. And the angel said to them, fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news. So if any of you follow the news on television or the internet, newspapers, social media, basically anywhere, you know that good news is hard to find. It's hard to sell, and we are bombarded with hatred and violence, the injustice that seem to plague our broken world every single day. But in this moment, there is good news. Fear would be replaced with joy as the angels announced to the poor, there is good news, and this time you are included. It is for you. God has come, and he wanted you to be the first to know. What? Inclusion? (laughs) I matter. My value is not based on what society says that I am. And some 30 years later, when Jesus would begin his public ministry, his inaugural message was the same as those told by the angels on the night of his birth. And he, because he declared what the prophet Isaiah had said so many years before, Jesus opened the scroll and he read these words, God's spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor. 
A few months ago, I was reading an excerpt from a children's book to my four-year-old daughter, Ella, as she was going to sleep. I was so taken off guard by the way this paraphrased version of the Sermon on the Mount ministered to my soul as I rocked my little girl in a rocking chair. The title said, God's Dream for His Children. One day, Jesus told his followers about God's dream of a world where all children of God are loved and cared for, and no one is left out. Blessed are you who are poor, for all of God's world is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry, for God will feed you. Blessed are you who are sad, for God will comfort you and you will laugh again. Blessed are you who feed the poor, for you are the hands of God. Blessed are you who comfort the sad, for you are the arms of God. Blessed are you who work for peace, for you are the voice of God. And blessed are you who are loving and kind, for you are the heart of God. Like the shepherds, we are also invited and included to taste and see the goodness of God. These simple words of Jesus that are not at all easy reminded me once more who it is that we are called to become if we want to be his followers. Earlier this year, a little girl named Naomi came to Kimbuyo Hospice, where I live and work in Kenya. She was six years old, and she spent her last days fighting cancer within our love and care. Her story was hard, and her pain was horrific. But our living room team embraced her and helped her to die with peace. And while Naomi was with us, Henry, a little boy with Down syndrome, came to visit the hospice. And when he met Naomi, he struggled to say her name. He tenderly touched her face and most appropriately called her brave. He told her in such a beautiful, childlike way that Jesus was coming for her. Last year, as I spoke at CA, I was wrestling with the question of how do we say to the poor that God loves you? How do we live that out? And these questions, they still resonate within my soul. But my friends, I'm also beginning to ask, how do we allow the poorest and the weakest to become our teachers on the human journey? A little boy is doing just that, whose name is Emmanuel. He was referred to living room in 2016 for end-of-life care, and his body had been ravaged by spinal tuberculosis, leaving him unable to speak and completely bedbound. At first, he was only able to move his left hand, and little by little and day by day, through a whole lot of loving work, Emmanuel came back to life. And in truth, the idea of him ever learning to walk again was not plausible when he arrived. But today, he's doing just that. And I want to show you a simple home video recorded on that first day. It was a moment to simply pause and to wonder, to celebrate the miracles that are within our midst. Christian Assembly. <laughs> yeah. 
So I say what he's saying, it means hugs. And so not only has he learned to walk, but the love that he has received and that he is also extending back to us is, well, there's not words. It's a beautiful gift. (laughs) There are moments where we have a glimpse of what is to come. And, you know, I... I don't know how to put into words all that I've witnessed in the miracle of this little boy and so many others who come back to life. But the phrase that, that caught my attention on this day was what a beautiful thing it is to watch love win. Christian Assembly, it was a year ago, as Tom mentioned, that um, because of your faithfulness and generosity, million was pledged and given to Living Room to help kids like Emmanuel. Um, What a gift. I still don't really have words to express my gratitude, but um, thank you. It was given to help us build a second hospice that will be called Kimbilio Care Center, which means refuge in Swahili. Phase one of the hospice is um, including a 38-bed inpatient care unit, an outpatient facility that will serve thousands of patients and families, and a beautiful garden chapel. And I believe that this extravagant gift is a good news message to the poor. It's declaring loudly You matter. You are seen. Your life, pain, and loss are significant. The gift will help to serve the poor, enabling more sustainable care to be provided over time throughout Kenya. Construction began in May, and we are 27 weeks into the process and on schedule to open the new hospice in August of 2018. And the walls of the outpatient um, palliative care clinic and physical therapy rooms are coming up. Foundations of the men and children's wing are being laid. The children's ward is getting ready to begin. And trenches for some private rooms are also um, in the beginning stages. The pillars for the chapel have already been constructed. And when Tom and Mark, they shared about giving this gift to me and then to the church last December, Tom referenced a verse in Proverbs which says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will be rewarded for what they have done. And see, I I pray for God's reward to be paid back to this community in ways that feels surprising, enriching, and stretching. I recently came across this prayer, and I'm praying it for us. See, may we get carried away to do obedient things that we have not yet done. Kingdom things we did not think we had in us. Neighbor things from which we cringe. May God act in us, through us, beyond us, more than we imagine, because newness is on its way among us. Whoever is generous to the poor, they lend to the Lord. And if I am most honest, the part of this verse that draws me in the most is not the idea idea of a God who can repay. That seems obvious to me. What I can't get over is that we in any way could have a debt to God. That he would take on these things, these debts, these loans, 
the creator of all the heavens and the earth. And at the heart of God is that he's willing alone to the poor, that he takes that on, on himself. He says, what you've gifted to the poor, that's my debt. Thank you. In verse 15, it says, When the angels, they had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And the shepherds, they hurried to go and see what they had been told. They had been invited to go and meet this Messiah in Bethlehem. The invitation involved interruption. The shepherds had to make a decision to leave their sheep. They had to take a walk to get to where baby Jesus was, and they did not know exactly where they were going. And I don't know what nearby means in this narrative, but in Kenya, if someone says to you, it's not too far, you should be wearing comfortable shoes. (laughs) And I guess that the point is to meet baby Jesus, a level of faith and sacrifice was required. And I wonder if part of the reason that the shepherds were invited is because God knew they would come. They didn't consider themselves or their schedules or their work too important to show up for him. They had enough space in their lives, whether welcome or not, I don't know, for God to interrupt their plans. And you might think, who wouldn't show up if angels appeared? But I wonder many times, in all kinds of ways, has God spoken to us, whispering or even shouting, and we don't hear And we don't see the glory of God on display in the sunrise, in the sunset, the stars, the trees in the forest, the birds singing, the sound of a child's laughter in their tears, the waves of the ocean. It was on a cross in an empty tomb. And on this night, more than the angels in the sky, it was a tiny baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. How do we listen How do we see? How do we keep our hearts soft, our eyes expectant, our ears listening? How do we make space, allowing room for the interruptions to our comfort and our plans? On that night, the shepherds, they chose to walk and to search, to find the baby just as the angels had described in a cattle trough. The awe and wonder that must have filled that space. But let's not make the setting too sterile. It wasn't clean and neat. There was the mess of a baby's birth mixed with animal waste in the nativity scene. Mary needed to recover, and I'm doubtful that Jesus slept that first night. He was a new baby learning to breathe. And maybe that's the point. Jesus entered into the mess of the world, and now there was room for those who didn't think they were worthy to be welcomed. Shepherds came, and Mary, she pondered it all in her heart. But let's not also glamorize their invitation in a way that makes us miss ours. There have been so many instances in my life where I've sensed a nudge or invitation by God, and most of the time it's been in very ordinary moments. I've had the privilege to live and work for the last 13 years in Kenya. I left Los Angeles as a 25-year-old with the conviction that no one should die alone. 
at the time HIV was rampant throughout sub-Saharan Africa. And little by little over the years, God has met me within the dirt paths with barefooted children. He has spoken to me under the trees through the eyes of a man who could no longer speak but loved to sing this challenging hymn that if, if it's translated into English says, Precious Lord, take my hand and lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, and I am worn through the storm and through the night. Lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. I've met God through a little girl who was dying, and her last request was for a plate of french fries. I found the loving God who says true religion is to care for the orphan and the widow. A God who has put dreams within me little by little because if he gave me a glimpse of the whole story, it would be simply too much. Create a hospice home. Ironically, call it living room to love and care for thousands of dying kids and adults. But it started with one little malnourished girl and one little malnourished boy. One lived and one died. And now as the dream expands to a new site with the goal of having effect on an entire healthcare system through patient care and education, the vision is the same. A community of compassion that in Jesus' name honors life and offers hope. Nineteen months ago, a five-year-old, a five-day-old, sorry, three-pound baby wrapped in a pink blanket entered my world. I didn't hear angels singing that Friday afternoon, but I'm convinced that the glory of God was on display. As I held this beautiful child, I was about to learn in ways I've never known before the heart of God. An invitation was being given to Titus, Ella, and I to love and care for this little one whose mama had died giving birth to him. His name, Ryan. And tragically, his father had also died in a roadside accident several months prior. When Ryan came temporarily into our home, it was Titus who a few weeks later said he doesn't need to leave. And that began a hard and beautiful journey that led to Ryan's adoption. Ryan is the youngest of eight kids. He has three brothers and four sisters, and we felt convicted of how important it was for the brothers and sisters to stay together. Earlier this year, my husband, he doesn't talk a lot, but one morning we were having breakfast, and when he does, it's good to listen. And he said, Julie, I don't want Ryan to grow up and ask us why we didn't help his brothers and sisters. So our family, as well as our hearts, has been growing exponentially. (laughs) And we are still discovering what this looks like to live it out, but it is quite a journey. When Ryan was six months old, 
he was diagnosed with sickle cell disease. And then days later, his three-year-old brother, Joffrey, and his eight-year-old sister, Alice, they also got the same cruel diagnosis. And the disease is terrible anywhere in the world, but especially in places like Kenya, the life expectancy for a child is less than five years old. And the only chance of cure was for them to get a bone marrow transplant, which does not exist in Kenya. So we worked to send labs to New York, and then we learned that Ryan and Joffrey had a match in their 11-year-old sister, Sharon. Um, Alice, sadly, did not have a match with any of her brothers and sisters. It's bitter and it's sweet. Titus and I worked determinedly over the next months to finish Ryan's adoption, to complete guardianship of Sharon and Joffrey, to identify a treatment center for bone marrow transplant, to choose insurance that would cover the expense of transplant, to work on immigration documents requesting to bring the kids to the U.S. for treatment. All of this was being arranged, and it felt like trying to put together a 5,000-piece puzzle. But when we decided to come to UCLA for bone marrow transplant, I struggled with the move back to America. I love our community in LA, but Kenya is now home. And there are so many who think that God sending them to Africa would be the most unbelievable sacrifice that they could ever imagine. But the idea of leaving it even for a season was hard. But in late September, Titus and I, along with Titus's lovely sister, Linda, we came to Los Angeles with our four kids, with Sharon, Ella, Joffrey, and Ryan. And the 36-plus-hour trip on airplanes and roads was long. (laughs) Most of the kids had never been out of the village before, so there was a lot to take in. But there was a deep awareness within me of God doing what in so many ways on so many days had seemed impossible. As my kids were melting down on airplanes and airports, I was really grateful that God had made a way. On November 20th, Ryan was admitted to UCLA to begin his bone marrow transplant. And I want to show you a video because I think it's the best way to give you a glimpse of the journey that we're on. I came to LA with four kids, my husband, with the hope that our little boy Ryan and his brother Joffrey, that they will be healed of their sickle cell disease. Ryan is almost 18 months old, and we've had him since he was five days old, and watched him grow and we love him so much. Joffrey is, well, we don't know exactly how old he is, but we think he's about four years old, and he's one of the most resilient kids I've ever met. Like, he's already had a stroke, and his ability to walk is very tricky. He falls probably at least 20 times a day, but he just wants to keep up with everybody, and He's had a lot of pain, and he's dealt with a lot of really hard things, including the loss, you know, of his mom and dad, but this kid, he's really resilient. Sharon is 11, um, almost 12. We don't know her exact birth date, but she's a really bright, bright girl, and 
her understanding and how she explains what she's in the process of doing is that she's going to give her blood to help save her brothers. So for the bone marrow aspiration, Sharon will be under anesthesia and they will drill holes into both of her hips and withdraw the bone marrow. So when, when Ryan goes into the hospital, we'll have 10 days where he receives chemotherapy and on day 10, then they'll do the bone marrow aspiration from Sharon and they will take, they'll try to harvest enough for both boys and give directly to Ryan half and then freeze the other half. So we're on day negative seven, which means we've been, he's had four nights of chemo and today he gets a new chemo that is it's more, um, well, it can be more aggressive, but um, so they're just giving him some pre-medications and um, it's set to start in a few minutes. So we're really hoping that, you know, some of the crazy side effects and stuff that he won't have. Um, thankfully, he's resting and he's done really well to this point. There's always risks with bone marrow transplants. Um, sickle cell disease with a matched sibling is one of the best case scenarios. And the latest research of what's been happening, it's, it's a close to 95% cure rate. And when we met with our hematologist, our bone marrow transplant doctor here, his name's Dr. Moore, and I mean, he repeatedly said, this is a life-threatening procedure. Like, he talked about it over and over again. And, and it's, you know, it's a lot to take in, but at the end he said, but I highly recommend that you move forward with it. Over the last, it's been about 10 days that we've been in the hospital and um, Ryan's gotten a lot of chemotherapy and um, then today Sharon um, came into the hospital last night and they did the harvest today and then they were able to transplant her cells. So, um, you know, it's been a long week of feels like so many medications and measuring constantly just to make sure he's okay and side effects with the chemo. Today has been a really big day for all of us sharing her harvest this morning so they were able to get all the cells that they needed for her um, that would go to both Joffrey and to Ryan and then this afternoon they brought half of the cells so that Ryan had his transplant we uh, still have a really long road to go but today was a really big day <laughs> one of the things I've thought about the last few days and weeks is, you know, we've been here during Thanksgiving and sometimes it's easy to look back on a situation and to say, here's how it began and how here's how it ended and to feel grateful that it turned out this way. But I'm feeling like we're still in the middle of the situation. Like, I don't know how all of this is going to turn out or what's going to become. And yet, like, how do you walk with 
gratitude in that and how do you um, look to God and it's hard there's a lot of hard stuff going on but I'm grateful that we were able to finally reach the day where he gets a chance to be freed from sickle cell I'm afraid of I'm afraid of the process I'm afraid of I'm afraid of the pain that he's going to have, the suffering that I know will be a part of it, and knowing that the goal and really the hope is that the suffering is going to lead towards life and give him a chance to maybe not even remember, you know, to not even know the pain and the suffering that he's already had and to take away the possibilities that he would, you know, again, have it in the future. I'm afraid of death. I mean, I take care of dying patients, but I don't want it to be my kids. (laughs) Um, And yet I know that this is actually the greatest chance they have for life. Well, you can take a deep breath. (laughs) As the marrow began to flow into Ryan's body, Titus played a challenging song, and the lyrics say, It's a new beginning. There's a new thinking. Look at it. God is saying, I'm doing a new thing. Don't look back. And now we're in a space of waiting and watching, hoping and praying. There's a lot of hard things about this. It's dark right now. And from the middle, I'm sitting with our baby as he suffers. And we're crying out to God to fight for our little one, asking God to be merciful, believing that no matter what comes, that he is with us. And the journey that my family is on, it's so much bigger than ourselves. There's no way that we could do this without community and support. And yet there is often this desire within me to see how I can repay or give back when a kindness or generosity has been given to me. Right now I'm learning to simply receive with gratitude. I'm learning that the journey we are on, that we have been invited to, it also allows for interruptions for others, some in really significant ways. And honestly, we are experiencing humbling kindness on a daily basis. And I can hear within my soul these words from a teaching I listened to years ago, years ago by Dan Allender when he said, Don't defame their gift. You were figuring out in your heart and your mind how you can repay the gift you've been given. Suffer the kindness of God on your behalf. And I'm not sure what that means for you tonight, but be open to it. Friends, the kindness of God that I have experienced over these past months, mostly by the hands of his people, it's been an indescribable gift. We expect Ryan um, that he'll probably be in the hospital at least for the next month, maybe two. And your prayers are requested and needed. And the crazy thing is, is that we're going to do it again in a few months with Joffrey. And I'm acutely aware, as Walter Brueggemann describes, that I am celebrating the impossible that is right before my eyes, even though I cannot explain any of it. Without a trace of regret, I wonder how have we gotten here? 
How did these beautiful little ones, how did they become ours? How did their pain, joy, and healing become a part of our story? And I don't pretend to know how heaven works, but I like the idea of a mama and a dad whose children I now consider my own, watching their little ones with the same sense of love, awe, and wonder that I find myself filled with. See, there are invitations all around us. May we have eyes to see, ears to hear, and minds to comprehend what it is that God is welcoming into us. And let's not forget that the end of this story that the shepherds went back to their sheep. They didn't go to some far-off place. They went back to the place that was familiar, but they went back with thanksgiving and with praise on their lips. And may that be true of us, too, of whatever God invites us into. May we be people of gratitude. May this Christmas season, I pray that we'll make space within our hearts, within our homes, for God. As I close, I want to read a quote by Jan Richardson. She writes that beyond and beneath the trappings that have become associated with this season is the wondrous truth that at the heart of Advent and Christmas is this, that the word became flesh and comes to us still as life, as light, as fierce love that does not abandon us in the darkest of times. Thank you.